Well, as we turn to the book of Ezekiel, a book that has a message for us in these days, and I believe it's a book that God will be pleased more and more to open up to the hearts and minds of his earnest people. There are portions of God's Word that I believe have yet to be unsealed, if we might put it like that. Portions that at present seem obscure, veiled, but will become more clear as we approach the end of this age and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have that scripture in Daniel, in the last chapter, where Daniel makes some inquiries as to what exactly the visions that he had seen meant. Now if Daniel to whom was shown the visions and who recorded them was not fully aware of what they meant and was asking the Lord for understanding then don't be surprised if you and I find things that are somewhat difficult in the scriptures but do what Daniel did ask the Lord don't run off to the library Ask the Lord. Now, the Lord in answering you might direct you, providentially, to the writings of some men. But don't resort to the writings of men first. Now, when Daniel did make that request, as you know, the Lord said, seal the book, Daniel. Because it's for the last time. It's for the last day. It's not for your age, Daniel. But it's for that people that will be upon the earth and who will be walking in the fear of the Lord. It's for them. So I believe the Lord has instruction yet for his people. Not that there's going to be new revelations or new inspirations but a new enlightening by the Holy Spirit of scriptures that we have before us and which God's people have had before them for a long time. I've got myself on this theme now and I don't want to leave it here lest I leave a wrong impression with you. You recall the two in the road to Emmaus. How that they were just totally bewildered by events at the cross. And that even though the Savior had repeatedly told them what was going to happen at the cross. Because the two on the road to Emmaus were no more confused and disconsolate than were all the other apostles. 
They were in the same state. And, and we know how well instructed they had been by the Lord, increasingly so as Calvary drew near and nearer and nearer. And yet still, they didn't grasp what he was saying. And the two on the road to Emmaus rightly earned the rebuke the Savior addressed to them when he spoke to them. O fools, and slow to believe the prophets. There are many divisions regarding prophecy. One man believes this, another man believes the other thing. There is only one right understanding. And that is the understanding of faith. Believing what God says. Some come to prophecy, you know, and they say, I see what is said here. I see what the words here in my English Bible say. And the clear implication of a simple understanding of these words. But it can't be. It can't be. There's got to be some other explanation. And man then indulges in his imagination. And he comes up with an alternative to simply what the words are saying. Why? Because he can't believe what the words are saying. And that, that's, where, that's where disagreements spring from. We don't believe what God said. Oh, fools and slow to believe what the prophets have said. That's what the Savior said. Their disconsolate state, their confusion came about from unbelief. They'd only believed. Then nothing at the cross would have been, in a sense, a surprise to them. Doubtless it would have been a heartbreaking scene. For the most believing individual to see the Savior suffer as he did. But nevertheless, it, it would not have been a mystery to them if they had believed the prophets. And as we are gathered here tonight, we're here to believe what the prophets have said. What God said through the prophets are meant for us to believe. Not to sit down and reach for a code book. And say, now, this has got to be written in code. It just couldn't be that what is plainly said here means what is said. There's got to be some code, and I've got to work on it. And out there, in the libraries of the world, there are any amount of books that men have produced by which they have given their estimate as to what the code is by which we might understand the prophets. We're not coming in that spirit tonight. We're coming simply to look at what is said. And though what is stated may be beyond our comprehension in the sense it's beyond our experience, that won't stop us believing what is said. I have never seen anybody resurrected from the dead. Never. 
I can't imagine what it must be like for someone who has been lying in Mother Earth for centuries, who has been reduced to the basic elements, suddenly rise from the grave. It really is beyond my comprehension. But I believe it with all my heart. And I know so do you. Well, apply that same thinking, that same principle to the words of the prophets. It doesn't matter how beyond our comprehension and our experience uh, they set forth matters. Just believe it. We are going to see wonderful and strange things in this world before the Savior comes. But I better come back to Ezekiel and what it is he has to say. Now the subject, it's been announced and you're well aware of it, the visions of the judgments of the nations around Israel. Those nations, as you will read the chapters uh, 25, 6, 7 and 8, are the nations of Ammon, Moab, Edom, the Philistines, or Philistia, and Tyrus. Why does God reveal to us events connected with these nations with whom you and I really have nothing to do? Why? Because he would first of all indicate to us how faithful he is to his own words. He threatened these nations with judgment. Here he details the judgment that is going to come. And history tells us that what Ezekiel prophesied really did take place. And thus, as we consider these things, we are refreshed and strengthened in our belief in the infallibility of God's word. We're encouraged thus to see that what God has said in the past, he has done, he has kept, he has been faithful to. But I think that more than just that, these four chapters in which these nations and the fate they will suffer at the hands of God present to us a picture of future events, future judgments against Antichrist and his allies. I have spent some time uh, on a twice-weekly basis speaking to young people right from primary one uh, up to A-level students all gathered together in the assembly, in the Christian school, in the church that I used to pastor. And I spent some time looking at the Word of God, the subject of the second coming of the Lord Jesus and other subject matters uh, it's been my joy to do that 
and to present to them the teaching of the Word of God. And children love picture books. Love picture books. For a number of years, because we live right beside the school, our, the grandchildren that, that attend the school, they come storming up to the, our house. And burst in. Because maybe mum has a few duties yet to perform down in the school and therefore there's a little free time and they make a dive for a particular cabinet in which there are a lot of books filled with pictures. And I marvel that they can take out the same books and look at the same pictures with such interest as if they had never seen them before. And they study them most carefully and note every expression and every line of the drawing to see all the action that's thus presented in that drawing. Kids love pictures, but then so do you. That's why the Bible is very much a book of pictures. Very much a book of pictures. God addresses not just the ear. But he addresses the eye, he addresses the imagination, if I might put it like that. And so often the Lord Jesus spoke parables and he painted thus a scene before the eyes of his people. And we still love those parables and from our earliest days likely we were instructed in them and by them. And that's why I say that you not only have here a record of the judgments that have taken place in the past against the nations mentioned, but I believe that there is also a picture of future events. When Antichrist and his allies will dominate the very areas that geographically the nations referred to here dominate You know, you've heard it before, I'm not telling you anything new, that oftentimes when God mentions the earth, he's not talking about the globe and all the territories and surface of it. He's actually talking about Israel and the surrounding areas, or what we sometimes call the prophetic earth. And I'm not going to go into that now, but there's ample proof, because you find... In our translation, our English translation, you will find uh, the word translated earth. And in other places it's translated very clearly for the territory of Israel. Same word. And there is this limited understanding dictated by the context in which the word appears of this word that God is speaking of that little portion of the earth. So often when he's referring uh, to it. And it's there. It's in that theater. That the drama of the ages will be concluded. And these little countries that are mentioned here. They will be a platform for scenes yet to take place. In which the final confrontation between the Lord Jesus. And the powers of darkness as is represented by the man 
called in the Bible the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition. That final confrontation will take place. Now, the scripture tells us that the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9 And there's a wonderful principle there. And I say that not only is it true, but it's a statement of entire logic. It's entirely logical to say there's no new thing that what was shall be. Man is an unchanging creature. He's unchanging in his spiritual disposition and his constitution. I know that the evolutionist holds out the most silly of notions. That man is on an upward moral path. Improving, getting better all the time. I don't think that there has ever been a premise with less scientific evidence presented to man than the follows of evolution. Totally and absolutely without evidence. And yet it's embraced worldwide. It's embraced by those who carry upon their brow the crown of learning, who are heralded as the greatest among the intellectuals. I think they deserve the title greatest, but not intellectual, but fool. Because the more a man is intellectually equipped to consider and analyse the more that man takes and looks at evidence and comes to the most foolish of all conclusions, then the more he is to be called a fool. It's totally unforgiven, unforgiving for a man who has the ability to analyse the matter, who abuses his abilities and comes to the most foolish of conclusions. No, man's unchanging. His disposition remains what it has ever been since the fall of Adam. If it were not for the grace of God restraining mankind, man would have plunged himself into the darkness of hell universally, long, long ago. Oh, How little men realize that. How little they realize that. Like the child. In my young days it was quite common for parents to put their children in a little harness with a little rein. That they could keep an eye on them and restrain them. 
Now you're probably breaking umpteen European laws and health and safety regulations, etc., 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 not to mention all the uh, high views that are taken by the Liberals as to how you should bring up a child were you to do the like of that. In fact, I saw a controversy in the newspaper not so long ago about a man who was seen with his child on a rain. And what a hullabaloo there was about that matter. But to use the picture, not for one moment does the little child thus restrained value that restraint or consider the wisdom of the parent who thus restrains it. <laughs> the little one spends its energy trying to break that restraint and get away. Well, men, like little children, do not understand the restraint that God has placed upon them and don't appreciate it and only wish they could dive more deeply into those unclean appetites and the satisfying of them that burns within their breast. No man being the same as was his forefathers will ever seek seek out anything new. He will simply desire the same wickedness that former generations have indulged in. We see it very evidently today with the re-emergence to some degree a public re-emergence of sodomy. For those of us who love the Lord we're aghast, we're ashamed we're amazed at the public acceptance of this vileness and this wickedness. And yet it has been around since the dawn of man's sinfulness. It has emerged on occasions, and I believe only by the grace of God kept in check in former times, although there will come a time, as the Lord Jesus has indicated to us in a number of places when that restraint will be lifted and man will be clearly seen allowed to develop as he did in the days of Lot. In the days of Lot. We're heading toward that. We're heading toward that. There's nothing new under the sun, as the Bible says. And... Also bear in mind that the Lord has said, I am the Lord, I change not. And put the two truths together and you come to a very simple conclusion. If man hasn't changed and God hasn't changed, then how God dealt with man in the past is how God will deal with man in the present and in the future. That's why we... Look at the judgments of God. And we can learn from them. For what God was towards sin in the past. He is today still. And will be. Ever. 
when nations sin as nations have sinned before, then the judgments that will follow such sin will again be as the judgments of the past. Here in this chapter 25, we have the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Philistines mentioned in conjunction with the other chapters that we're looking at. Now, I do not intend examining each declaration regarding the judgments that's going to fall on these particular nations uh, for you will understand that such uh, an undertaking, such an examination, would just really take uh, too, too long. But what I want to do is to highlight some important features of what God says in these chapters regarding the sins of the nations and regarding how he will respond in judgment to those nations. And I want you ever to bear in mind that we are looking back on scenes that have taken place centuries, millennia ago. But there is also sketched in there reflections, likenesses to events that have yet to come. First observation I want to make is this. For Israel, the mouth that uttered judgment against her also spoke of deliverance and retribution against their enemies. In many ways, This is so with all of those who are redeemed. I read my Bible and I hear angry words by God directed against me when I was a sinner. But I read on in my Bible and I come on the words of mercy and the words of blessing. And the words of kindness coming from that same mouth that spoke the words of judgment. And therein you have the mercy of God, the free grace of God. When Ezekiel preached these words to Israel, doubtless there would have been comfort for poor distressed Israel in the record given them of the judgment of God against those nations that had rejoiced in their distresses at the hand of God, under the hand of God, which had followed their apostasy. They had received God's word of judgment, chapter 21, We'll not read it, but let me direct your attention to it. Chapter 21, and particularly the first 17 verses, you have God's judgment against Israel. 
We're looking at God's judgment at the nations round Israel, but God had spoken and sent his prophet with words of judgment against Israel before, at least in the order of the chapters that we're looking at, before he had addressed the nations round about. And what solemn, dreadful, fearful words are recorded in the verses that I've mentioned in chapter 21. I'll pick out one word for you and ask you to follow it through for yourself. The verse 3 of chapter 21 says, And say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheep, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Now you look through the, the, the 17 verses I've mentioned in which Israel in particular is addressed and you will find again and again and again God mentions the sword. God mentions the sword. Listen to me, brethren and sisters. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And God spoke of a sword. He spoke of that which was even worse than that piece of metal designed to kill and slaughter. It was a sword of judgment that would be employed by various means to wound, to break, to inflict, to humble, to punish Israel. Oh, that we might learn to fear God. Those are the words that were directed at Israel. Now, now, Israel is hearing the words of God directed at those who had been used by God to inflict the nation of Israel. In other words, those that were God's instruments are now spoken of by God and it's clear God is going to punish those nations who took up the attitudes that they did against Israel and Israel could at least find some measure of comfort in that I want to particularly draw your attention just to, to what is said in these chapters and that will in essence take up the most of my message but look at what God has to say to the Ammonites and, and let me tell you this it doesn't pay to mock God's people our brother made reference to that very fact uh, in his prayer, his opening prayer. And I was wondering, had that fellow got a look at my notes or something? But uh, he didn't. He just uh, had seen and read and looked at the portion of scripture that is before us. Because there it is plainly stated that it does not pay to mock the distress of God's people. No matter how angry God is with his people. And no matter how he is afflicting them. Don't stand and mock. 
Don't stand and rejoice at what's happening. Because God will ask an account of you. Look at what it says then. We're looking at uh, we're looking at chapter twenty five, and we're reading. I'm going to select some verse. Look at verse three. Say unto the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God, because thou saidst, Aha. Is that all they said? Well, if that was all they said, it was too much. Aha. A term of mockery and derision. Aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. God heard that one word. And now he's going to hold them to account. How little we understand of the justice of God. We live in a nation in which every day we see our courts dismissing without penalty the greatest breaches of humanity. And the country has become used to it. Become used to it. Thinks nothing of it. But God is not like man. And here we see it plainly stated. Read on, for thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast clapped thine hands, and stamped with the feet, and rejoiced in heart with all thy despite against the land of Israel. He'll not only note the words of your mouth, but he'll note how your hands were used to rejoice, how your feet were used to rejoice, and how in your secret heart you rejoiced. And God's going to hold men to account for this. Behold, therefore, I will stretch out mine hand upon thee, and will deliver thee for a spoil to the heathen, and I will cut thee off from the people, and I will cause thee to perish out of the countries. I will destroy thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. This world. This world that has forgotten God. Did you notice in all the reports about the fire in that tower? Not one person ever mentioned God. Except one Muslim. I heard saying how, I think it was an uncle, was at the window. Many stories up, I think, the, I'm not sure where he perished or not or whether they got him out, but he said of his uncle that he was at the window shouting and calling on Allah. And there was no mention of God or anybody calling on the God, the true God, the only God, the God of heaven that I saw in the report. Maybe there were reports that I didn't witness or read or hear about, but I didn't come across any. Because God's forgotten. God's unknown. In England. England. The nation that gave the world the modern missionary movement. God's forgotten. I always remember a dear brother. I think he's in glory now. 
His name was Jordan Khan. He was an Indian. And he loved the Lord. And his father, he used to say with a drollery that I thought was very Irish. He used to say, my father was the prayer partner of praying John Hyde. Now you've heard of praying Hyde. And he then went on with a, a little smile on his face. Of course you've heard of John Hyde. He was an American. You never heard of my father. He was just an Indian. And all of us who listened to him would ruefully have to shake our heads in agreement and say, well, that's the truth. But Jordan Khan was a mighty man of God. Preached in a minister's week of prayer in Lisbalaw about 1969. And all the free Presbyterian ministers came down were giving, given lodgings and then from the morning to the evening they spent in time uh, spent the whole day in prayer and then the evening Jordan Khan would come and preach. What a time that was. What a time that was. But he preached one night on the vineyard being ravaged by the wild beasts as a result of God Removing his hand of protection from it. I wasn't, I, I was only ordained. <laughs> In fact, I was only three, four years saved. And what a meeting that was. And Jordan Khan said his son had won a, a scholarship to Cambridge. And he said he fell down on his knees before his son. And he said, son, do not go to England. Do not go to England. It's a wicked place. And he broke down in tears and wept profusely for the land, as he said, that gave the modern missionary movement. And he was so broken, I remember he, he just turned from preaching and he got down at the chair that was in the pulpit and wept his heart out. And I was standing there and I did not know what to do, praying to God most earnestly, how shall I close this meeting, what shall I do? I didn't really know. And I just, I didn't get any direction from the Lord, so I just had to close the meeting in prayer as best I could. But I never forgot that. That man saying, now we have to send missionaries from India to England. To England. England's a place where God's forgotten. You know that I have come over to this land many, many times and enjoyed the company of Mr. Tom's here and we've gone to monuments, we've gone to great churches where men have preached and I have never, never 
gone into such places or looked upon such items without my heart feeling what God did in this land. In this land still there's monuments to what God did. And it's, it's a, the monument is the huge parish church in the middle of nowhere that would seat hundreds. For there was a time in England the hundreds went to church and feared God. And it made England what England for the time became. But now God's forgotten. God's forgotten. Well, we can learn from what God said to, uh, to this nation of Ammon, who despised the things of God and despised the people of God. I'll destroy you. I have thought on these words, you know, as I've listened to the news in recent times since the last election results. This is a nation that's destroying itself. It's a nation that doesn't know which way is right. And there's nobody to point it out. The religious leaders of this nation, the established religious fraternity, are a bunch of the most wicked apostates. Blind leaders of the blind. They haven't got eyeballs. Never mind eyeballs that don't function. <coughs> oh, how sin has brought the nation down. Look again further down the chapter. Verse 6, I think it is. <clears throat> For thus saith the Lord God, no, on down, verse 11, I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Countries that were idol worshippers, countries that mocked the very idea of Jehovah, and mocked those who followed and sought to obey Jehovah. God's going to teach them that he is the Lord. I am the Lord. The word there is Jehovah. I am Jehovah. This world, this world is in for a deep spiritual lesson yet. And one that will last throughout eternity. And bring everlasting misery. I will execute judgments upon Moab. You can go on down there and you'll see how God mentions Edom and how he will cut them off. He mentions the Philistines and the revenge of their spirit for they have a spiritual disposition toward revenge. You know, my friend, you don't come from Northern Ireland and listen to the news about what's happening among the Arab nations without understanding it. Because what we hear the Arab saying, who hates Israel, is but an echo of what we hear among the Irish Republicans who hate the gospel. Now they hate the British and they hate the Protestants and they hate this, they hate that. But they hate all these things as a result of the bitter opposition there is within their hearts toward the
the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same can be said here of these Philistines. They have dealt by revenge and have taken vengeance with a despiteful heart to destroy it for the old hatred. You know what that means. The old hatred. How long Israel had felt the hatred of the Philistine. No matter how many victories David gained, they were bouncing up again. Full of the same venom. Well, God says he's going to deal with them for he has noted all this. Verses 13 and 16 goes on to deal with that. Look at chapter 26, verses 2 to 4. Son of man, because that Tyrus hath said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, that was the gates of the people. Again, God hears the words. And she is turned unto me. I shall be replenished. Now she is led waste. The world sees enrichment from the destruction of God's people and the witness of God's people. That today society believes it has become intellectually, socially more advanced as a result of the trampling underfoot of the gospel and the morality of the gospel. We're better off. We're advancing. The more we put down the gospel and the people of God, the more we will be replenished and enriched. That was the spirit of Tyrus. I'll be replenished now that she is laid waste. Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus. No more dreadful words could be pronounced by God against any individual or any nation. I am against thee. What hope is there for such a people? And will cause many nations to come up against thee, as the sea causeth his waves to come up, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus and break down her towers. I will also Rip her dust from her and make her top like the top of a rock. All that happened. All that happened. And let me tell you that that which God in the past has, has accomplished against the enemies of his people, he will again. He will again. When in his time and according to his wisdom, that same spirit of hatred toward Israel is manifested and Antichrist takes center stage. Let me just quickly learn with you some simple lessons from what we have just looked at there. These statements of judgments against the nation. Such truths preserve us from the despair that is likely to overtake us when we find ourselves in the midst of tribulation. Remember the words of Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Comfort for those who are troubled. Given by God. And what is the nature of that comfort? It's a revelation of the judgment. With which he will afflict those who trouble his people. And that's why I tell you. Though Israel has received dreadful news from the lips of Ezekiel. As he brought the word of God to them. Nevertheless as he continued on and preached against the other nations. There was a measure of comfort for Israel. And that those that afflicted Israel would be visited by God. Such truths, I tell you, preserve us from despair. But also, such truths will keep us back from seeking revenge against our tormentors. Paul wrote, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. But rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. What is not reported to any degree about the 30 years of terrorism we had in Ulster was the lack of revenge among the Protestant people. Now, it's not but there were those who rose up and who were every bit as evil as the IRA, but said that they were taking vengeance on the IRA for the actions that the IRA had taken against the Protestant people. But you know, those organizations, at quite a number of elections, put forth representatives but the Protestant people never elected one not one in fact the only one that was ever to obtain a seat in the Stormont Legislative Assembly or one of them was taken And without political support from the electorate was placed in that assembly by decree of the Westminster government. No. You see there was amongst the Protestant people of Ulster, even amongst the ungodly. I don't say all, but a large portion A fear of God. A realization of the truth of what Paul here says. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I have heard God's people, and I have heard ordinary people who wouldn't profess to be Christians. For, listen, I, I attended so many Funerals of murder victims down in my own area, and I heard people, wives, children, husbands, friends, loved ones with tears in their eyes saying, Vengeance is mine. 
I will repay. And they comforted themselves from this. And it kept them back from vengeance. It kept them back from thinking about how can I get even with those. Because you know, brethren and sisters, in Ulster, you knew who the IRA was. They, they created a great air of, of secrecy uh, when they went about their terrorist activities. But everybody knew who was there. They couldn't have produced evidence of it, but they knew who was the supporters of IRA terrorism. And very often, let me tell you, that because the IRA activists were confident of the fact that the police didn't have evidence, they would openly boast of their activities. And yet even though these villains were known, very, very, very rarely, and certainly in most instances without the support of the victims, was ever any vengeance sought upon them. No, it'll keep us back, knowing that God's going one day to deal with those who have afflicted his people, will keep us back from seeking revenge. There is an important verse I'd like just to maybe just read it to you and take the time to do that in Psalm 125. Psalm 125. And it's the verse 3. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. God will not let the wicked torment the righteous to such a degree that they break and turn and seek to execute vengeance upon their tormentors. God says, I'll not allow that situation to develop. And one of the means that he stops that situation developing is to tell us of the judgments that he's going to execute upon the wicked. Being aware of God's judgments, men and women serves to keep us in the fear of God. When we read our Bibles and we believe what it is God says, because what he says, do remember, what he says here in the chapters we're looking at, he executed against those nations, precisely. Precisely. I've been wanting us to think that there is a reflection here, a foretaste here, a foreshadowing here of future events, but... There was a literal fulfilling of these predictions when God judged the nations exactly as is stated here. And secular history will give you abundant proof of that having taken place. And when we bear in mind the awful judgments of God, it will keep us in the fear of God. First Chronicles chapter 13 and the verse 12 says, And David 
was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? What was, what was it made David afraid? God striking down a man who in all earnestness of heart had reached out to steady the ark when it was shaken and broke one of the commandments of God for none was allowed to touch the ark but God's appointed ones. And that man who intended no offence I think I can say that who intended no offence but rather acting out of a desire for the honour of God and not wishing to see the holy ark in any way damaged reached out his hand and sought to stabilise it and steady it and God smote him dead and God demonstrated that what he makes threats in his word he keeps them and David that day had a lesson brought home to him with tremendous power and he feared God Oh, when we become acquainted with the judgment of God, of the, the, the nature of God, the character of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, we will fear God. Is there not a great absence of such a fear today? Is there not a great lack of any awareness or consciousness of God's power? Among us people today, I've already commented on the general public, but I'm talking now about the professing church of Jesus Christ. Is it not true to say that there is a, a, a remarkable absence of a reverence and a fear of God? How we handle his word, how we assemble to worship. How there has been a departing from that form of worship which in years past was born out of a reverence for God, a fear of God. And now because there is not that fear of God, that form of worship is deemed old fashioned, of no relevance today. Let's change it. Let's jazz it up and dress it up. Let's tear it up. Young people, go to God's house, dressed in whatever fashion they wish. How they would go to the beach, how they would go to the football game, how they would go out partying with their friends. That's the attire to come to God's house I said recently, I was preaching in the church I used to pastor. I remember a day, and it's only a generation ago in my land, when there wasn't much money about. And in the wardrobe, there was only one item. Because what was worn every day wouldn't have been even hung in a wardrobe. I'm not exaggerating. I remember 
when man and woman would have been dressed, dressed the best they could, and as clean and as neat and as tidy as they could, but they were garments patched and repatched many times. There was no money. But still hanging in the old wardrobes with the pockets full of mothballs was a suit for Sunday. They'd never dream of going to the house of God in the garments they went to the buyer in to milk the cow or to go out and catch the horse to plough. They'd never dream, never dream of going in their everyday attire. And man, when they come home from church, they hung that suit up almost reverently and put it away that it might not be in any way harmed, ready for the next outing to God's house. There was a reverence for God, I tell you. And that, that was amongst even those who, who had very little knowledge of God, most of whom would have been unsaved. But they had that regard. There was a fear of God. There was a fear of God. It's absent today. And I'm, I'm repeating, it's absence amongst God's people today. I have been called a dinosaur. I see the DUP were most offended at being called dinosaurs in the Houses of Parliament uh, the other day. Well, I have been called a dinosaur many, many times simply because I, I adhere to the principles and the, the pathway, the beliefs, the teaching of yesteryear. Of yesteryear. When Joseph was summoned before Pharaoh, it says he shaved and changed his garment. Whatever he was wearing, he deemed it not fit to be worn in the presence of Pharaoh. And however he appeared, he felt he had to do a little and he shaved to make himself ready. To face Pharaoh? Well, how much more ought we to think of how it is we appear before God? Now, <clears throat> time is rushing on, and I've got through one of four points. Something tells me that I'll not get finished. But let me give you, while I have a few minutes that I can still take, let me give you a second point. I want you to notice the disposition of the prophet. In the chapter 25 and the verse 2, you have, as it were, the beginning of Ezekiel's task to address the nations that had troubled Israel. And the Lord says to him, Son of man, Set thy face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. And I think that I'm not stepping outside uh, the teaching of God's word if I were to say that the same preface could be placed before each one of the 
threatening prophecies that Ezekiel addressed to the other nations referred to in these chapters. Set thy face against. Set thy face against. You know, folks, it's no light thing to pronounce God's judgments against sin. I know that this rather cuts across the light and frivolous spirit so often seen in pulpits today. The preacher is more to be likened unto a circus clown, a master of ceremonies, a comedian, than the picture presented here of the prophet. He's told by God, set thy face <clears throat> against. Now, God's face was against these nations. And Ezekiel was to display as he preached God's disposition. His countenance was to be appropriate to the solemn words he was to water. When God's truth is in our hearts, then our countenance will reflect it. You remember Elisha? When God sent him with a terrible word to Haziel? Second Kings chapter 8 to verse 11. As he was about to utter the great pronouncement, it said he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed and the man of God wept. Now that is an expression of a man who as he's about to utter God's pronouncements, his whole being is overwhelmed by what it is he's about to say. His face becomes ever more settled and solemn. And he becomes more ashamed, more confused, more distraught. For that's what the word ashamed here is speaking of. And he was overwhelmed by the words he was about to pronounce against Haziel. Not against himself or against Israel, but against this evil man Haziel. But the prophet was overwhelmed by them. Where do we see preaching like that today? Where do we hear men so speak against sin as to give you the impression they know something? the power of the judgment they're pronouncing. They have looked to some degree into the pit to which these men that they're pronouncing against are going. Such a disposition will draw the world's hatred. Coming to New Testament times, 
We read in Acts chapter 4 and the verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter, not heard, but saw, saw in their countenance, a boldness, a confidence, an authoritative expression, a bold expression, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They come out of the Savior's presence to pronounce the Savior's words and they had about them the disposition of the Savior. Same said of of Stephen. Acts 6.15 It was just the same. All that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And God sent angels to pronounce judgment as like the case in Sodom. Do you think there was on the face of any of those angels any hesitation? Any fear? But there was the holy horror of the sin that those they were condemning were engaged in. They showed something of the disposition of God. It is a terrible thing to have God's face against you. Set your face against them. And thus show them that my face is against them. In Leviticus chapter 20 and the verse 3. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he hath given his seed unto Moloch to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. This wickedness so offended God, God's face was against them. I always think of Israel coming out of Egypt and Pharaoh and his armies perversely change their attitudes and their minds and they pursue after Israel. We read that the cloudy pillar, fiery pillar moved behind Israel, between Israel and Egypt. And the Lord looked out on Egypt. What a fearful look that was. What a fearful look that was. God noted what what Egypt was doing. And we know that that night, all that were in Pharaoh's army were wiped out. I'll tell you what I was going to say. Pastor Willie Mullen used to give advice to young preachers. He used to say to them, when you get up, tell them what you're going to say. And when you have told them what you're going to say, say it. And then when you've said it, tell them what it is you have just said. And if by then they haven't got the message, just forget all about preaching. Well, I'm going to tell you what I was going to say in the last two points. I was going to mention 
the reasons for the terrible judgments that are here predicted against these nations. We've already noted how God has heard and noted and recorded their words. Chapter 25, verse 3, 6, 8, 12, 13 to 15. And note the word because, 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 because. Listen to me. God the judge explains his judgment. He explains his judgment. He lets the sinner know. Here's why you're being found guilty. Here's why you're going to feel the everlasting punishment of my wrath. And God has a cause. God has a reason. God is just. God has a record of the sins that have taken place against his people. He has a record of them. Chapter 27, verses 27 to 36. And then again, giving a New Testament context to it, if you look at Revelation 18. And here we touch just very gently on the counterpart to the judgments against these nations, which, as I say, are but a foretaste of a judgment that is yet to come against the allies of Antichrist in in Revelation 18. The verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues, for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. That word remembered there does not mean quite what it means when used of us, call to mind. Suddenly, where we have not remembered, we begin to remember. No. With God, it's not a matter of him ever having forgotten and suddenly recalling, but it's a matter of God bringing to the fore of his mind, the front of his mind, in order that he might act upon the sins of those who are his enemies. The words, we've mentioned that, the words spoken against his people. God will deal with it. The Savior in Matthew 12 and 36 speaks about about every idle word that man speaks. He'll give an account of. What a restraint that should exercise upon our lips. All linked with the enemies will suffer. All who have had any part in the activities of these enemies that God is speaking about will suffer. Verse 27 of chapter 27. The riches and the fairs, thy merchandise, thy mariners and thy pilots thy conquerors and the occupiers of thy merchandise and all of thy men of war that are in thee and in all thy company which is in the midst of thee shall fall into the midst of the seas in the day of thy ruin. You know, brethren and sisters, the doctrine of separation is despised today. It's not believed in. 
There are many platforms across the world where leading evangelicals and men honoured and looked up to and fawned before are quite happy to share that platform with those who have just come from some conglomeration of preachers in which various versions of the scripture have been used, various false doctrines have been proclaimed, and they're happy to share the platform. And God's people generally say, there's no harm in that. This is all part of witnessing. That's not how God sees it. And what is predicted here in chapter 27 and the verse 27 we can see is a New Testament truth. We have just read 18 and the verse 4. Come out of her, my people. This is out of Babylon. Out of Babylon. The end of the age. Come out of her, my people. There will be, even in such a place as that, to be found those who are God's people in truth. But they haven't exercised separation. They haven't obeyed the Lord. But his covenant with them he will not break. And in mercy to them he's calling them out before the judgment falls. Like, it's the same as Lot. You and I would never, never look upon Lot as a godly man, as a saved man, as a holy man, were it not for what Peter said, that just man. There's no evidence of what Peter says of Lot in the accounts given us in Genesis of Lot, or at least very little. But God would not destroy Lot, because Lot belonged to him. And here's God speaking to those who are in a very evil place, in a very bad place. But he will not destroy that place until he gets them out. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues, for her sins have reached unto heaven. All linked with those that God is going to judge. Ezekiel 27 verse 27 will be visited by judgment. And Revelation 18, and you can read all down there about the merchants and the kings and all who supported Babylon and the kingdom of Antichrist. They're they're reaping the consequences of that. The last point I was going to make was God's judgments are most dreadful. I don't need to make reference to specific verses in these chapters, 25 to 28. You can read them for yourself and you'll you'll read the most explicit denunciations by God and expressions of wrath and judgment that will be leveled against these nations. The strongest of terms are employed by the Lord. But listen, there's no exaggeration. I've listened to the leader in North Korea and what he is not going to do. But to be quite honest, there's very few in the world though recognizing that he's a wicked, evil, demented, likely lunatic 
but he has estimations of his greatness and his power far beyond what is true and real. But there's no exaggeration with God. Brethren and sisters, there's no exaggeration with God. The fury he speaks of, the anger he speaks of, the wrath he speaks of, the cutting off, the destroying, is all quite literal. God give us a fear of God's judgment. It's interesting to notice that Israel will be God's instrument of judgment. Now this must have been a comfort to Israel. And it's a showing of that which is to come. Look at chapter 25 very quickly. Look at chapter 25 and the verse 14. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to mine anger and according to my fury. And they shall know my vengeance, saith the Lord God. This is future. How do I know it's future? Because there is still the nations spoken of here. They suffered great judgments subsequent to the days of Ezekiel. But the remnants of those nations still exist. They haven't been cut off. But God says there's a day coming Israel will cut them off. Oh, how often in this room and in, in places where Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony conferences have taken place, how often preachers have said before the truth of God, taking that people long despised, long in darkness, long in sin, long in rebellion against God, but still loved. God will one day take them. They'll be reconciled to them. Zechariah 12, 13, 14. And in consequence to that, of that, they will be exalted and become as instruments. And one of the instrumentalities in which they will be employed is that they will lay God's vengeance upon the nation spoken of here. In that day, when those things begin to take place, brethren and sisters, divine order, the order that God has from all eternity determined will come to place, come to pass, I should say. Deuteronomy 28, oh, I'm finished, I'm finished. Deuteronomy chapter 28, we're not going to read the verses 1 to 14, but there you will see where God says in the last verse but one, verse 13, The Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. Thou shalt be above only and thou shalt not be beneath. If 
that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. Those are the measure, those things seen in the days of David, to some degree, in the days of Solomon, to some degree. But they will be fully and finally seen one day. And God redeems the remnant. divine order that chapter I might say explains why Israel is in the state it's in today it's not the head it's the tail it's not above, it's beneath and in every country we still read about the hatred of the Jew we read about government's concern with uh, anti-Semitism because it's still rife. But there's a day coming. There's a day coming. May God hasten that day. For it's the day when the manifested glory of the Lord Jesus will be seen by us all. The Lord bless his word. I've spoken maybe too long and We've been feeble in our efforts at preaching, but may the Lord be pleased to bless his word to all our hearts.